Hi, welcome to our Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa community. I'm Nicolette and we're glad to have you joining us for today's gathering. Pastor Brian Broderson will be walking us through Jesus's arrest and Peter's denial of Jesus today. Here we see the power and control of Jesus. At his word, with his I am statement, all of the soldiers coming to arrest him fall to the ground. Despite all appearances, Jesus was in charge. As he identifies himself as Yahweh, then and still today, evil is destroyed. He is the name above all names. And as he speaks, the unjust are silenced. Just as Jesus is in control of history, he is in control of your life. Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. We can have that confidence that in the midst of chaos, Jesus is in control. Trust Jesus, look to him. Like Isaiah 50 says, do I lack strength to rescue? Here we are. Um, you know, last Sunday I was in Lima, Peru, and just had the wonderful blessing of, of speaking to that beautiful congregation there uh, in Lima, Calvary Lima. And I had my, my friend Kiki Torres from Mexico and he was translating for me. We were just having a, a fantastic time. He's like one of the most hyper people in the world. So, you know, I'm not all that hyper, but, but Kike really, uh, he added a whole new dimension to my personality, which, um, <laughs> And it was in Spanish, which I thought was really great. So, but Kike isn't here today, so it's just me. And, uh, <laughs> but we're, we're picking up and we're coming, as you can see now, we're coming really to the end of our study in this wonderful Gospel of John. And it, I think it's kind of interesting that we, um, we, we literally are coming to this um, portion dealing with the death and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus right in line with Easter. And I don't, we didn't really plan this, but this is how I think the Lord just helped us to um, put it all together. But as we pick up today, we, we now come to this, this narrative. Um, Jesus has been you know, speaking with his disciples in that very intimate setting, as we've seen, beginning back in chapter 13, going uh, through chapter 16, and then remember in chapter 17, he prays that beautiful, beautiful prayer. So this is now, all of that is finished, and we read, when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. So the Kidron Valley, if you were, um, if, you, if you've ever been on an Israel trip with us, which I know some of you have, um, if, if we're up on the Mount of Olives and we're looking across at the, the city, we're looking at the east gate, the east gate is sealed up there, the valley down in between is the Kidron Valley. So Jesus would have left the city uh, probably through the East Gate and he would have traveled with the disciples. They would cross the Kidron Valley. The Kidron is a, basically just a little, um, a brook that would be dry in the summer, but it would, it would be a, li a little bit of a, there would be a little bit of a flow during the winter. And so they cross there, and they're going now to the Mount of Olives, and they're going to the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Now, all the other gospel writers give us certain details about the things that transpired in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm just going to mention them as we go through. But John doesn't do that. And John doesn't do that because John, as we've talked about many times before, John has a very specific um, purpose in writing. And so some of the details John just doesn't bother with. Other details John gives us that nobody else gives us. And this is where we see John's firsthand account. So they cross the Kidron and they come to the other side, now to the garden, which we know would be the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priest and the Pharisees, they were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Let me pause for just a second. So, as I said, John has a... Um, he has a purpose, and he, he's highlighting something here. And he tells us right here, Jesus knowing, knowing everything that was about to happen. So none of this is taking Jesus by surprise. And the thing that we're going to see was, was stated quite well by um, Leon Morris in his commentary on John. He said this, he said, as in the other Gospels, it is the events surrounding the crucifixion and resurrection that form the climax of the whole book. John has his own way of handling these events, a way which stresses the divine overruling. Thus, his account of the arrest stresses Jesus' complete mastery of the situation. And there are touches like the it is finished of the dying Savior, which indicate plainly that the outcome was completely in God's control. Here we see the purpose of God worked out, and here supremely is the glory of Jesus displayed. So this is the thing that I, we're going to take away today. Our big takeaway is going to be that despite all appearances, Jesus is completely in control of this situation. So now this detachment of troops come. They're, they're led by Judas. Now remember, the last time anybody saw Judas was at the Last Supper. And it was then that Jesus had said, one of you is going to betray me. And then it was Judas who left. Now nobody even really understood they, they still didn't figure out who it was that was going to betray him. And nobody really understood why Judas even left. They thought, John tells us, they thought that Judas was going out to buy more for the feast. So they haven't seen Jesus. They've been in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has, has had this, this experience. Luke tells us where he's sweating, as it were, great drops of blood, um, it's been called the agony in the garden. There, there was this 
this agonizing that Jesus was going through. So all of this has already happened. And the next thing you know, these, this detachment of troops shows up. Now, some people, commentators discuss, you know, interesting details sometimes. Uh, some think it was uh, a combination of, of the temple guards who would have been Jewish and that somehow they had asked the Romans to come and assist. Maybe so, we don't know. But this detachment of troops come. But here's the thing. Judas is leading them. What must the other disciples have thought as they saw this happening? That Judas, he's leading this detachment of troops to arrest Jesus. But we see Jesus. He knows all that's going to happen. And so he went out and he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, our text says. Jesus said, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, it's interesting I am he, Jesus literally said, I am. He did not say, I am he. And so, so what happens next is this detachment of troops. Now, there, there could have been, you know, a hundred soldiers there. But however many there were, maybe there were less. Maybe there were more. However many that there were, when Jesus said, I am, they all fell to the ground. Who's in charge of this situation? But it's, it, again, it's, he is, I, I think John is intending for us to understand that he, Jesus is invoking the name of Yahweh that he is identifying himself as Yahweh. And that is why there is this um, falling down of the soldiers. And in, in that, Jesus, of course, is making it clear who's in charge. So, again, um, he asked them, who do you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. I told you that I am. Now, it's interesting that Jesus at this point, that's it, that he, he lets them know in no uncertain terms who's in charge, but then he also allows for everything to transpire. Now, go, going back to the I am for a moment, let me read to you what N.T. Um, Wright said this, and I thought it was good. He said, this is the simple, clear, and world-changing statement, the, the I am, the simple, clear, and world-changing statement. The vulnerable man standing before you in the garden, glimpsed in the flickering torchlight, is the one who from all eternity was equal with the Father. He is the I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Something 
Wright says, of this divine reality is the only reasonable explanation why the arresting party stumble and fall to the ground. Their reaction, whether voluntary or involuntary, mirrors what people in the Bible do when coming face to face with God. Of course, we live in a time when, for the most part, the name of Jesus is just something people use to express their frustration, their anger. But the name of Jesus, the name above every name. And, and there is a time coming when that voice that spoke that simple I am and pushed back all the resistance with, with just a word. There is a time coming when that voice is going to speak to the whole world. I was reading Thessalonians this past week. And, and sometimes, you know, when you don't read certain books of the Bible for a while, you, you forget how great they are. And I'm, I'm reading Thessalonians and thinking, oh, my goodness, I forgot. Like, you know, here talking about the, um, the return of the Lord. He will come and with the, you know, just with his very presence, he will destroy the wicked. You think of how entrenched evil is in the world, how almost impossible it is to get wickedness uprooted and removed. I mean, think of what's going on in Ukraine. Think of this war. Almost everybody agrees that this is an unjust war, that this is evil, that this is horrible, and that this guy Putin is just, you know, he's wholesale slaughtering people. Almost everyone agrees with that. Nobody can seem to do anything about it. And we don't have to look to Ukraine. You can find that in, you know, cities all across America. You can find it in some cases in homes. How can evil even ever be dealt with? Well, Jesus will deal with it with a simple word from his mouth. With the brightness of his coming, with the breath of his mouth, he will slay the wicked. And this is just a little reminder here of that being the reality with Jesus. So, picking up again. So, Jesus says, I told you that I am he if you are looking for me, let these men go. Again, we see Jesus is in charge. Let, let these men go. Um, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant cutting off his right ear. All the Gospels tell us about this. John alone tells us who, who it was, who did it. It was, it was Peter who did it. And then John also tells us the name of the servant. His name was Malchus. And this is interesting in light of what we're going to read in just a moment, but Bear with me as we get there. So Peter, of course, he's, he doesn't want this to happen to Jesus. 
he, Peter is well-intended, but he's, he's misguided. <coughs> Maybe you remember the incident where um, Jesus had asked the question, who do you say that I am? The, all the disciples answered with different answers. Jesus, uh, Peter speaks up and he says, you're the Christ. You're the Messiah, the Son of God. And um, Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John. Um, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father in heaven revealed this to you. And you are Peter, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and so on. And then Jesus goes on to explain, yes, I am the Messiah, and here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And Peter says, never. That is never going to happen to you, Lord. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Because you're thinking like your you're, you're thinking is purely human. You're not thinking like God. Peter is genuine. He's sincere. He loves Jesus. He does not want anything to happen to Jesus. So he pulls out his sword and says, there's no way. And he strikes the serpent of the high priest and cuts off his ear. But Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Now, from the other Gospels, back in the garden, we know that Jesus is praying. And what is his prayer? Lord, Father, if this cup can pass from me, let it pass. But if not, your will be done, not mine. And now Jesus is referring to the cup, the cup of suffering that's about to come, the betrayal that's happening. Jesus says that this is actually the cup that the Father had given him to drink. And of course, Jesus was... Again, in control of this whole situation, this is what God had ordained from before the creation of the world. Peter's trying to fight against it. Jesus is saying, put away your sword, Peter. Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish official, officials uh, arrested Jesus, they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas, now John reminds us of something that he already told us, Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. So John had, had uh, told us about that um, in chapter 11, it's recorded. They're perplexed about what to do with Jesus. And Caiaphas stands up and says, you don't know anything. Basically, this guy has to die. Because if he doesn't die, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. So it's better that one person die and the whole nation not perish. And now John, John brings that up again. What John also told us is that Caiaphas was prophesying even though he didn't know it. He had no idea that what he was saying was actually prophetic of what would happen. Jesus would die so the nation would not perish. Jesus would die so we would not perish, but rather that we could live. Verse 15, Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. 
Because this disciple, this other disciple, was known to the high priest, he went in with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So the mystery, who is this other disciple? Um, I think most people agree it's John himself. He refers later uh, to the other disciple, and it's clearly him. But just a, a little bit of a side note, interesting thing, John is known to the high priest. Like I said, John's the only one who gives us the name of the man whose ear Peter cut off, Malchus. John is familiar with the high priest. He knows the girl at the door. He's able to bring Peter in. People wonder, well, how could that possibly be? Well, just a thought, and again, this doesn't really matter, but it's just, I think it's good to know these things and to think about them. John's father was a very um, successful fisherman, and John worked for his father, Zebedee. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. They, their father had a fishing business. They ran the business. The the priest would have purchased their fish from them. So it's probably through that um, little connection that John has uh, this, this kind of relationship and he's able to go into this this place where Jesus is, is now going to, the, the trial is going to begin in the house of Annas and Caiaphas. So John brings Peter in. As Peter is coming in, verse 17, you aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? Asked the servant girl. Peter replied, I am not. It was cold and the servants and officials stood around a fire that they made to keep warm. Peter was also standing with them and warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in the synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. And when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded if I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So once again, we see Jesus is in control. High priest is asking him, commanding him. Jesus says, no, you go talk to the people. I didn't say anything in secret. And then even when he's, he's uh, illegally struck by this man and he says, now, you, you know, you can't speak to the high priest that way. Jesus, Jesus is pointing out the, the illegality of what has just happened. Why did you strike me? 
And in all of that, we see, again, Jesus is, he's controlling the situation. And it, it almost seems here that Annas doesn't even know what to do. So he sends, uh, he sends Jesus to Caiaphas. Now, again, just a little side note. Annas was the high priest. And under um, the Mosaic law, the high priest remained the high priest his entire life. But under Roman rule, because the high priests were very powerful, the Romans did not let them... Um, have an indefinite period of, of rule, they would replace them. So Annas was the high priest for about 10 years, and then uh, his sons replaced him, and ultimately Caiaphas is his son-in-law. And so he's replaced by his son-in-law. But in the eyes of the Jewish people, Annas is still, he's still the guy. Caiaphas is a little bit of a puppet of Rome, but Annas is the guy. But, but here he is. He's the ultimate authority. And he really doesn't know how to even respond to Jesus. And so they send him to Caiaphas. Meanwhile, back to Simon Peter, he was standing there warming himself. So they asked him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Peter, you know, in, in here you see these different... Um, Judas is there, right? We started with Judas. So in Judas, you see the, the um, you know, you see this deception. You see this hypocrisy. You see this person who is pretending to be something that he's not. I mean, can you imagine being in the circle of Jesus and yet being a traitor in your heart from the beginning? I mean, that's... That's scary to think of. But that, that's who Judas was. John doesn't have a whole lot of sympathy for Judas. John tells us that, uh, you know, there, there was that time where um, Mary was, was, uh, broke that alabaster jar and she was, um, you know, washing the feet of Jesus. And, and the disciples became upset because, oh, this was such a waste. But Judas was the instigator. Judas was the one who said, why, why are they wasting that? that? That could have been sold. We could have given money to the poor. Oh, he looked so pious. And John said, he didn't care about the poor. He was a thief. And he was mad that, that the money wasn't put in the money bag because he used to take the money out of it. So we see Judas, and we see this person who's just, he's, he's nothing that he appears to be. He's a complete phony. But he appears to be a follower of Jesus. But then you look at Peter, and Peter, what we see in Peter is we, we see that Peter is the guy who 
you know, he, he's the most courageous and the most cowardly simultaneously. He's the person who wants to do the right thing. He just is not quite sure what, exactly what the right thing is. And we see his courage. He pulls out his sword. He's going to take on this whole detachment of troops if he has to. But then we see him cowering in the presence of this young servant girl. And in Peter, we, we see that a, a genuine believer who's just weak. And his bigger problem is he doesn't think he's weak. He thinks he's strong. And so that makes him even more vulnerable. Because remember, the thing about what we just read, these, these denials, Jesus had told him already that he was going to do this. And Peter protested. Jesus said, uh, tonight I'm going to be betrayed and everyone's going to forsake me. And Peter says, not me. <laughs> I mean, literally. Like, these others. He says, these others may forsake you. I will never forsake you. I mean, if you were in that group, you would just be thinking, oh, shut up. <laughs> Who do you think you are, Peter? I mean, everybody would have been mad at that, undoubtedly. But that's, that's Peter. He's, but what's the problem with Peter? He's confident in himself. But what happens? When, when, when things get really tough, he just buckles under the pressure. Now, the beautiful thing is we will find when we get to the end of the story is that just as Peter denies Jesus three times, Jesus gives him an opportunity to reaffirm his love for him three times. And then with Peter, you know, as you follow Peter's life, Peter is such a beautiful picture of the Christian life because you see in Peter this process of sanctification where he starts out as this courageous but strangely cowardly person, but he, he just becomes, in the end, he becomes one who, um, he dies a martyr's death, and he embraces it. But as we, that we're, we're finishing there, as far as the story goes, and we'll pick up um, the rest of the story, because Jesus is now going before Caiaphas, and... Again, John has his own purposes, so he doesn't give us all the details. But if you want the details, um, read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Read the same account, and you'll get all the other details of the things that happen. The, the details of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Luke even tells us that there was a certain point where Pilate sends Jesus to Herod. If you were just reading the Gospel of John, you would not have known that any of that happened. As a matter of fact, if you were reading anyone but Luke, you wouldn't know that that had happened. <clears throat> but we'll, we'll pick up there next time and go through and, and see Jesus before Pilate, because that is going to be a fascinating moment as we see Jesus before Pilate. But... Remember, this is, this is my big point that I want to make today. The overarching message here in John's account of the betrayal, arrest, trial, and ultimately death of Jesus 
is that he, despite all appearances, remains firmly in charge. Now, we talked about Judas for a second. We talked about um, Peter, Annas. You know, I think about Annas. What, what is Annas? Annas is just a, a hardened heart that's, that's beyond, there, there's no, nothing's going to change the heart of Annas. That's, some people are like that. You know, some people are like Judas. They're, they're, big, they're just hypocrites. They're, they're living a phony life. Some people are like Peter. They're weak, but they're sincere. Some people are like Annas. Their hearts are so hard that they'll never, they'll never turn no matter what. Jesus, Yahweh, God himself in the flesh is right in front of Annas, and Annas is just determined to reject him. But then you've got this other person in the story that's unnamed, but we've already kind of identified as John. And I wonder, and I have no idea, but you know, you wonder like, what is going on in the mind of John at this time? Is John maybe the one person who, even though he doesn't understand everything, maybe he's the one who remembers like, wait, Jesus, Jesus said that he was going to be betrayed. And Judas was a betrayer. Jesus said that Peter's going to deny him three times. And wow, that has indeed happened. Is John the one who kind of just is able to just sort of trust the Lord and let things unfold here according to God's plan? Maybe so. But again, the point is that Jesus is in charge. And when we get to the conversation between Jesus and Pilate, this is where it gets fascinating. Because at a certain point, Pilate says to him, hey, don't you know that I have the power to release you or to crucify you? Now, Pilate does have power. He's the Roman governor. But Jesus says, actually, you would have no power whatsoever against me were it not given you from heaven. What is Jesus communicating there? He's communicating, hey, you're not in charge. Even though it looks like you are, even though you think you are, you could have no power against me. And then we see it finally, and I'm stretching things out. We'll get there on as we move toward Good Friday. But, you know, even all the way to the very end, where Jesus says it is finished. Jesus is doing something here. He's accomplishing something. And he comes to the point where he says it's done. It's finished. And then, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. So Jesus is in control. He's in control. He was in control of this whole thing that came down. And guess what? He's still in control. Jesus is still in control, believe it or not. He's, he's, the history is going exactly the way the scriptures said it would go. And to the average person, they don't know anything about that, doesn't look like that. Talk to some people about Jesus returning. They're like, what, who, when, I, what are you talking about? But as we look at history, as we look at what God's word says, 
we see that things are moving exactly in the direction that he said they would move in. I was listening to a conversation yesterday between um, three historians, none of them Christians at all, and um, Peter Frankopan, who is, um, wrote the best-selling book, The Silk Roads and the New Silk Roads, and he's just written a new book on, it's kind of the history of like climate change. You know, he kind of goes all the way back in history and shows that like the climate scare that we live with today is nothing new. This, is, this has happened in times in the past. But he said, almost in passing, he said something that was so absolutely astounding to me. And he was, he was talking about, you know, kind of just the global situation. He was talking about the, um, the, the climate issues around the world, which have then created economic issues, which have led, you know, and the politics have led to all kinds of other things. You know, the world is in turmoil. But he said this, and it was so fascinating. He said, and you know, many people today are beginning to doubt that democracy is the best way forward. And then he said this statistic that blew my mind. He said 45% of college-educated people under 40 believe that democracy has failed and that a strong man is what is needed to lead the world forward. And when I heard that, I thought, wow. Because that's what the Bible says is coming. A strong man will come to lead the world forward, seemingly, but we know he's going to lead the world over a cliff. But we also know that, again, as Paul says in Thessalonians, that this person is the person that the Lord will destroy with the brightness of his coming. This person who uh, exalts himself above God, this person who uh, demands that he be worshipped as God. So all of that to say, just a, a quick side note, but all of that to say, the Lord is in control. History is moving along just as he said it would. And here's the even better news. He's in control of your life and mine. He really is. He's in control of our lives as we've yielded our lives to him. Remember what it said there um, when Jesus said, let, you know, he's speaking to this detachment of troops, right? He shows them his authority by them all falling down. But then he commands them, basically, let these men go. And that's what they do. But then John tells us that he said that in order that his words would be fulfilled, I have lost none that you gave me. Jesus doesn't lose any that the Father has given him. Jesus isn't going to lose you. He's not going to lose me. He's not going to lose us. He's not going to lose anything. And so we can have that confidence that even in the midst of chaos, maybe you know, global chaos, but even more relevantly, personal chaos and trouble and challenges and difficulty. Do we know the Lord is in control?
Do we remember the Lord is in control? You know, last night I was praying for somebody and I, <laughs> I was praying all these really sort of um, directive prayers for God, you know, like God do this and do that. And, you know, this needs to, and then I, and then I caught myself and I just thought, wow, how stupid. <laughs> because earlier in that day, um, I follow this, uh, this woman on, um, I think it's Twitter. Uh, her, she's a astrophysicist. And she, um, she posts, like, every day for the month of March, she posts another um, cluster of stars in the, you know, in our solar system, in our galaxy. And when you look at these clusters of stars, it's just insane. And then she talks about how many light years, you know, this cluster of stars is from us, you know. And, and, and you think of like the, the vastness of, of the universe. It's inconceivable. We can't even conceive of it. And when we think of the intricacies of, of creation and all the little details and things that we are still discovering, and just, this is all like mind-boggling stuff. And guess what? Jesus made it all. And so as I'm praying and I'm kind of giving the Lord destruction, I just, or destruction, I'm giving him instruction on this, I just found myself sort of laughing at myself and then saying, okay, sorry, Lord, forget it. You know, do whatever you want because obviously... My advice, you do not need. <laughs> you know exactly what needs to be done. So whatever needs to be done in this situation, Lord, you do it. But let's remember that. He is in control. Trust Jesus. Look to him. And I want to close where we started. Remember those words we read earlier. Remember who's speaking. Yahweh says and did you get that? Yahweh says, I gave my back to those who struck me. John doesn't record that part, but did you know that that began happening in the house of Caiaphas? They began to beat and mock Jesus before he went to Pilate. But there in Isaiah, I gave my back to those who struck me. I gave my face to those who plucked my beard and I did not turn my face away from shame and spitting. That's what Jesus did, but he was still in control. And so he says, remember, by my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I turn rivers into a desert. I clothe the heavens with darkness and make sackcloth its covering. Question, do I lack strength to rescue? Answer, no. <laughs> of course not. Jesus is in control. Let's remember that. Thank you, Lord, that you are in control. You're in control of everything. And Lord, sometimes from our point of view, it does seem like things are spinning out of control. But we thank you that you are at the helm of history. 
We thank you, Lord, that you showed us in your life and ministry your complete control over every situation. And thank you, Lord, that that truth is for us today, too, that you're in control. And, Lord, we want to trust you. And, Lord, we know that it's easier to trust those we know best. So help us to know you better, that we might trust you more in the days ahead. Amen.